0: Well, good morning. I had a lot of trouble coming up with a title for our study today. Uh, if you look in your bulletins, you'll see that the uh, title I chose was Clueless. And that wasn't just because I was clueless about what to call this. This comes from our text. It comes from our understanding. It comes from our modern culture. Let me read through our whole passage and uh, start to explain this to you. If you haven't, turn with me to Luke 18. I'm going to start reading at verse 18 and and read through verse 34. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. On the third day, He will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what He was talking about. Well, to some degree, the uh, title comes out of that verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. See, the disciples were clueless. They just couldn't figure it out. They couldn't make sense of it. This didn't fit how they thought, how they were trained to think about how things should work. I would argue, considering what Jesus says about riches and about his own decisions and about the the plan of God, we are clueless. Now, this isn't by accident. We've been trained. We live in, in a society, in a culture that is designed to make us clueless. The institutions of our society, by and large, are cultivating cluelessness. Several years ago, a movie came out. I think they've made a TV series of it. But this was a a, a reinterpretation of Jane Austen's movie, uh, our book, Emma. Uh, The the movie was called Clueless. This is the story of a young girl whose life revolved around shopping and parties and clothes and shifting romantic attachments. Uh, This was a parody of our consumer oriented culture that seeks to find fulfillment and meaning in an endless progression of uh, of experiences and relationships and material possessions. Now, this was a kind of a fun, light look at the uh, foolishness, the lostness of trying to find fulfillment and meaning in these things. But there is a not-so-fun, a spiritually deadly implication to seeking to find life in these things that the, 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 our culture holds out to us as answers. Let me give you a very brief, limited cultural history of America. Up to the middle of the last century, the 1800s, typically every family produced pretty much what they needed for life. They w- would uh, raise and, and grow their own food. They would build their own house, furniture. They would make their own clothing, chop wood for fuel, make candles for light. Other than iron tools and guns, there was just about nothing they needed to get from the outside. And even though at times life was very difficult, there was a a fairly high level of contentment with what people had. Then, uh, beginning in the uh, the cotton plantations of the south with the introduction of machinery for processing cotton and then moving up into the factories of the north, the great industrial revolution kind of changed everything. More and more people were specializing in what they made and this left them more and more dependent on money to procure the necessities of life. But even then, the necessities of life were relatively few and though Again, life was often hard and hours were long. There was a fairly high level of contentment. Even up into the first half of this century, in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, the needs, basic needs of life were still fairly simple. And it required relatively few material possessions for people to feel content with their life. But during this time, uh, the the Industrial Revolution began to change our society. We began to produce so much more in in goods, in material, in commodities, that it became obvious that our ability to produce was far exceeding the need. The problem of how to, to resolve this, what to do with our enormous capacity for surplus production, began to change the way we thought as a culture. By 1925, advertising had become an industry that was discovering the enormous potential of developing new markets. The the, the question was no longer, what do people need? The question was, how can we make people believe they need what we have to offer? Advertising began to attack contentment as the obstacle, the, the, the impediment to sales and to economic development. Then came the Great Depression and World War II. The Depression served as an object lesson, in what can happen if you're not materially secure? It gave a, 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 an enormous jump start emotionally to the, the thinking that having is happiness because people had come through a time where they didn't have and had known the fear of not having. And then World War II gave a great leap in our production capacity. The focused effort to to produce the materials necessary to fight... A global war upgraded and expanded our production cap- capacity to an incredible level. We produced all kinds of things to be sent over, shot up, blown up, sunk, used up, thrown away, as we overwhelmed the Axis powers by our staggering production capacity. And then the war ended. The the things that we were producing to... Uh, uh, to, to fight a war were no longer being used up, yet our production capacity continued to increase. And this, uh, our ability to produce so far exceeded our need that it precipitated a cultural crisis. To stop, to shut down production would throw us back into depression, yet there was no need driving this enormous uh, capacity to produce. So marketing and advertisers came to the rescue. 1955, marketing expert Victor LeBeau wrote, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded, at an ever-increasing rate. Utilizing the, uh, the, the media of, of print and radio and then moving into the enormous potential of the newly invented medium, television, advertisers begin to fulfill this mission. But again, the mission wasn't to meet needs. The mission was to create needs by shifting our thinking from contentment to insatiable desire for more and new and different so that, that what we had would be seen as obsolete need to be get, to be discarded so that we buy the new. And this insatiable hunger, this, this insatiable need was to be created by creating the illusion, the belief that our spiritual needs, our ego needs, our relational needs, could only be met by consumable things and consumable experiences. So you don't buy a car to get you from point A to point B. You buy a car because that's who you are—powerful and sexy. Now we don't build cars; we build excitement. We tell our our children during those vulnerable adolescent years, that the way to find a healthy relationship is to have white teeth and clear skin. And we say, how silly. But we still buy the toothpaste that gives us the white teeth and we still check out each other's teeth. And, and, and in some ways, subtle ways, we look for somebody who has white teeth and we say, I don't understand why the marriage didn't work. He had white teeth. Satisfaction is found in chewing gum. And when we chew that gum and we aren't particularly satisfied, there's somebody standing by to tell us, well, of course not, because true satisfaction comes from them having a new mattress. You see, we buy into to this lie. There's always something more, something that's going to satisfy us. Alan Ehrenholt put it in his book, The Lost City. We face a numbing and seemingly endless progression from one option to the next, all without the benefit of a chart, logistical or moral, because, we, because there are simply too many choices and no one to help sort them out. We have nothing to insulate ourselves against perpetual temptation to try one more choice, hoping that it will be the payoff. He said, we have no chart. We have no compass. In fact, moral stability is an enemy of consumerism. It begins to, to govern our choices and limit our consumption. And we don't want limits. The, the used to be the only limit was on how much money you had, but now we have credit to take care of that problem. Limits are the enemy of consumerism. Our culture wants you clueless. Now let me stop there before you wonder if I'm a communist agitator or uh, trying to give you an economics lecture. I just wanted you to see our culture. It's not that I'm against uh, uh, technology and industry. I like indoor plumbing. I like having my car in a warm house. But the issue is the deception, the lie that we buy into, that having equals happiness, that things can meet my deepest needs, that wealth is the answer to my deepest longings. Again, Aaron Holt said, we have no moral chart and no one to help us sort it out, but we do. Here's our moral chart. And Jesus is here to help us sort it out. Jesus is still the radical. As we saw last week, he confronts our culture just as he did the culture of his day. So let's look at his words, look at what he had to say. This man approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this young man was a good guy. He had led a good life. He tells Jesus, as far as he knew, he hadn't violated any of the commandments. He, probably growing up, was told over and over what a good boy he was. Uh, He'd never rebelled. He'd never sowed wild oats. He was a good kid. He's a good adult. He saw himself as good. So he had no trouble addressing Jesus as good and and considering Jesus good. They were both good. Jesus stops him right there and says, wait a minute. God alone is good. One of the problems with wealth is that it can insulate us from honest moral inventory, from critically, honestly looking at ourselves and our conduct and our values and our character. We fall into the equation that, that wealth equals virtue. This is a very strong equation in Jesus' day, and it is a strong equation in our day. We assume that if we're successful, we must be good. And Jesus wants to confront those assumptions. He wants to confront those assumptions in this young man. He wants to confront that assumption in us. Jesus uh, tells this man that he already knows what the moral standards are. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus is setting this guy up. Notice that Jesus is very selective in which commandments He lists. He leaves off the first four and He leaves off the last one. Think about what He's leaving off. The first four have to do with putting God first in your life, having no God before Him. And the last commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. These are the ones that Jesus left off. And He knows how this guy is going to respond. The guy excitedly said, All of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus doesn't challenge this. I think this young man is sincere. As far as he knows, he really hasn't violated any of the commandments that Jesus listed. But I think somehow this young man also realizes that's not enough. It's not given him what his heart is aching for. His heart still isn't satisfied. He still doesn't have peace. So Jesus tells him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now before we analyze what Jesus had to say, I want you to realize that this is very poor evangelism technique. I mean, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you start by telling them all the things God can do for them. You'll never close the deal if you start off by telling them all the stuff they're going to have to give up. You know, leave that for the fine print that they can discover years later. But that's not Jesus' style. He's honest. He uh, he wants people to know up front what the cost will be. He doesn't play games here. In Mark's account, Mark tells us that Jesus loved this young man. Mark 10.21 uh, tw- puts it, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. You see, Jesus loved this young man. He loved him enough to want to see him freed from the trap in which he had become ensnared. He loved him enough to be honest with him, to shoot straight, to not pull punches. Jesus' love is tough. Jesus comes straight. Jesus said, One thing you lack. And then he goes on and tells him three things to do. He says, Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and follow me. What Jesus is really saying is, one thing is getting in the way, and that's your wealth. This man's wealth was doing several things to him. First of all, it was constricting his focus to completely be focused on things of this world. He was not concerned for heavenly treasure. He was only concerned about the earthly ones and all that he had and managing that and and, and increasing that and taking care of that. He wasn't focused on, on spiritual treasures, on heavenly treasures, on relationships, on love, on loving God with all of his heart and soul and strength and mind, on advancing God's kingdom. His attention had been distracted. When Jesus talks to the Pharisees who loved money, he said to them, Use your money to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. He says, money is just a tool. It's a resource to be used for what's really important. Relationships, the kingdom of God, spiritual values, heavenly treasures. In Jesus' day, it was actually even taught that, again, wealth Equates to virtue, that wealth is a sign of moral virtue. You know, look how God is blessing this person. They must be good. Well, in our day, we wouldn't put it that way, but we still have elevated wealth to be the supreme virtue. If somebody's rich, they're worthy of respect, regardless of how they got it, regardless of their character. As a culture, we value wealth as the primary virtue. We don't care how they got it. And it has eclipsed spiritual values. I've been astounded to watch the political debates over the last couple of weeks. Even when the candidates are asked questions that specifically deal with spiritual or moral issues, they flat out refuse to answer. And they insist on talking about how they're going to increase the wealth of America. They don't want to be distracted by divisive issues like honesty, morality, virtue, fidelity. I mean, these things just get in the way of what's really important, how we are going to become richer. Moral values, spiritual values are merely impediments to our primary goal, personal and national wealth. So the first thing this man's wealth was doing to him was completely distracting him from treasures in heaven, from spiritual treasures, from spiritual values, and keeping his attention focused on on this world, on, on material. But the second thing it did to him was that it kept him from following Jesus. He came to Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus. But when it came down to it, as sad as it made him, and it made him very sad, the text tells us, But as sad as it made him, his wealth got in the way. It caused him to say no to what Jesus asked him to do. You know, the only way to follow Jesus is as Lord. He's got to be in command. Not second in command, not third in command. In absolute command. And when we focus on wealth and acquiring wealth, when He asks us to do something that will decrease our wealth or or take time that we've dedicated to pursuing wealth, how often we say no. How many of us are saying no to loving our wives or our husbands or our children because our focus is pursuing wealth? How many of us are refusing to, 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 to minister anywhere within the body because it would take... The time and the energy we need to focus on wealth. How many are not reaching out in our neighborhoods? How many are not willing to pass up promotions to have time and energy for what's important? How many are saying no to our Lord's command to give financially to the church and to the kingdom? How many of us, how many ways, how many times do we say no to the one whom we claim as our Lord? What is your Lord calling you to do? Will you say no? Is it wealth that's standing in your way? Now, this passage that we're looking at is really all about riches and wealth. But there are other things in our lives that cause us to say no to Jesus. This man's God was money. And that's true of many of us. But there's other things that we worship. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's some recreational activity. Maybe it's some wrong relationship. Maybe it's just plain old pride. Maybe it's, it's a, a bitter, an unforgiving spirit. What one thing do you lack? What one thing stands in the way of wholehearted devotion to Jesus? Jesus loves you enough to ask for that one thing, to put his finger on it and say, I want that. Jesus wants it because he wants it out of the way because he wants you. He's not into deprivation, just giving up things for the sake of giving them up. He wants you and he wants a real relationship with you, not a pretend one, not one where we're telling ourselves that we have it yet. We follow all kinds of other things. He loves us enough to want a real relationship with nothing obstructing it. And in Jesus asking for, in Jesus calling us to give up what interferes, He's not reverting back to some kind of works-oriented salvation, like you have to give up everything for Him to love you. No, He already loves you. It's just that there's nothing in your life worth letting come between you and Him. Jesus often asks us to do something so that our our true priorities will be revealed. You know, we can say, Jesus is number one in my life until He asks us to do something. Then, if we refuse, we have to face the reality that we're just fooling ourselves. Back to the passage, back to wealth. Jesus looked at this man and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. See, Jesus recognizes how hard it is for us to get past our preoccupation with stuff, with wealth, with advancement. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not talking about me. I'm not wealthy. Yes, you are. We all are. If not by American standards, then certainly by global and historic standards. We have so much more, every one of us, than the rest of the world. We have so much more than kings of old who tried to warm themselves in their drafty old castles with wood fires or scratchy wool blankets. We just kind of tweak up the thermostat a little bit. Every day we sit down to feasts of unheard of variety and freshness and flavor that they would have been amazed by. We have so many things in our house, so many helpful gadgets and and devices that they would have longed for. But even more than all of this, we have a wealth mentality Jesus says it is harder for us to enter the kingdom than for this huge camel to get dragged through this tiny eye of a needle. Jesus intentionally chooses something absurdly impossible so that we will face the the reality that it is impossible apart from God's help, apart from his intervention for us to be saved from all this. And again, what's the problem? What's the issue with wealth? It isn't that God is somehow anti-possession. God gives us good things to enjoy. He wants us to to enjoy what He gives us with gratitude and delight, to to praise Him for it. Gratitude really is the key to enjoyment. And it isn't that God is even anti-consumer. We have to consume to live. But the problem becomes that we begin to live to consume. We buy into the lie that consuming is life. That our deepest needs and our deepest longings can be met by having things, having wealth. We look for the things that only God can provide. And we look for them in the things that we own, in the things that we have access to. We look for peace in a new house, and joy in a new car, and comfort in food, and freedom and escape in television. And when these things don't give us what we're looking for, we continue to buy the lie that it's just because we don't have enough or exactly the right ones. And we keep chasing the lie, keep running from one. To another. The problem is that the lie looks so true. It just seems true. I watch Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous and I can just feel how good it would feel to have that house. You know, to be driving that car and sitting in that hot tub. I can sense it. And I can fantasize about what a million dollars would do for me. So I write my letters to Ed McMahon and wait for him to visit, sure that that's going to satisfy. And if I was only richer, I would be secure. If I was only richer, I would be significant. If I was only richer, I'd have all these wonderful experiences and friends and sex appeal and, and everything would be wonderful. We buy into the lie and it just leaves us insatiable. Running from one lust to another see, the, the Bible calls this dissatisfaction, this discontentment, sin. It's a sin of coveting. We as a society and as a people are enslaved to the sin of covetousness. We covet our neighbor's house, his car, his wife, his reputation, and it is killing us. The sin of covetousness focuses us on our felt needs. It's not driven by real needs. We could be satisfied with our real needs, with food and shelter and clothing. Jesus tells us we can be content with that. No, it's our felt needs that control and drive us. We've been trained to have our felt needs controlling us and driving us. But the problem is, That our felt needs don't stay just in the area of things. In our marriage, if our old wife doesn't meet our felt needs, throw her away and get a new one. And if God doesn't meet my felt needs, throw Him away and create a new one. We are driven. We are controlled by our felt needs. And our real needs are ignored. The one thing that we should have an insatiable hunger for, God himself is ignored or distrusted or relegated to becoming just a means to an end to advance and enhance our material wealth. See, we don't need him for the basic needs, food and shelter So we don't have to put up with what He says. We don't have to listen to Him. We don't have to submit to Him in our decisions and in our lives. We convince ourselves that we can do fine. We don't need Him. Only God can deliver us from this trap. Save us from this confusion. Only God can open our eyes that have been blinded by literally millions of messages that all affirm the lie. Only God can retrain our hearts. And only faith that leads to obedience can break the patterns in our lives. God will lead us out of this if we will trust Him and obey Him. Obey Him in the face of that powerful emotion, the face of our programming, our training. You see, He will call us to do something that flies in the face of that emotion that, calls us to serve consumerism? And the answer is trust and obey. And one of the uh, places to start is in giving financially to God in a regular, planned, disciplined manner. The reason this is such an important biblical discipline is because this is the one place we have opportunity to regularly confront our enslavement to consumerism. It puts our faith to the test. Do we believe God? If we believe God, then we will give now i can 't tell you how much that 's between person and God, and i won 't tell you where you should be giving to, to the church that 's biblical, but there are other needs. There are poor around you, there are poor around the world. There are missionaries, there are field staff. You know, Again, it's one of our, go- our goals as a church for every family to be uh, supporting at least one of the field staff. But even beyond that, there are individuals and organizations that it honors God and it advances His kingdom for us to give to. Give wisely. The bottom line, give in a disciplined, planned, intentional, regular manner. If you don't give, you don't believe God. Also, hold all of our possessions loosely. Share them with others. Let others enjoy what God has given you. His design is for it to be enjoyed. And the more you can multiply that enjoyment, the more you make His heart glad. Not only are we to give in a disciplined, regular fashion, we should be free to respond to the needs He shows us around us as well. Let God be in charge of your money. And here's the big one. Be content with what you have. Be grateful for every detail. Like I said before, gratitude is the key to enjoyment. Praise Him for what He's given you to consume. Let your consuming be an avenue of praise and be content with what you have. It's a clear instruction of Scripture. Now you don't need a new car if the old car is safe and it gets you where you want to go if it still works. There's nothing wrong with a new car, but you don't need it. You have already everything you need. Don't buy into the lie that you need new and different. Stop lusting. Stop coveting what you see all around you. Listen to God. Trust Him. Obey Him. Now, look at what Peter says. I love Peter. He is always so clueless. He says to Jesus, Well, we've left everything and followed you. We did it, Jesus. We're right. We're righteous, aren't we? You know, with all this talk about doing... Uh, Legalism and self-righteousness is just around the corner. And Peter, true to form, immediately jumps there. You know, we're righteous. We've done it all right, huh, Jesus? We're righteous because we give 10%. Well, we give 30%. Well, we give it all. This misses the whole point. This is not a means to righteousness. This is simply doing what is right and smart. You know, Jesus does not dispute what Peter says, but he corrects the underlying confusion, the underlying sense that somehow they've done something sacrificial. You know, when we obey God, and it costs us, and it will cost us, we can either become self-righteous Look what we have done. Or we can become self-pitying, as if we're, we're being deprived. We begin to tell ourselves that, boy, I could be much richer. I could be much happier if I didn't give so much, if I didn't follow Jesus. We begin to resent God Himself. We begin to feel ripped off by God, who's the giver of all good things. This is because we buy into the lie. And what Jesus says is, wait a minute you made a good deal. Why would you feel noble or why would you feel ripped off about making a good deal? And it's like you found a, a, a painting in your attic. It's up in the attic because you don't really like it. But now you discover it, it's a long lost masterpiece. You, you sell it for two million dollars. Now did you just do something noble and sacrificial? Now, does it make any sense to whine about not having that painting anymore? Of course not. You just got $2 million for it. You just made a great deal. Be glad. Be overjoyed. When you give up the lies of this world, when you give up the lie of wealth, you get so much more. You get God now and for eternity. He is the source of all those things Things that we've been seduced into seeking from material and from wealth. He gives true peace, true joy, true satisfaction, true security, true significance. You made the deal of the century. Be excited. And finally, uh, Luke closes with Jesus' example. Jesus doesn't just teach these things. He lives them as well. Jesus tells them they're on their way to Jerusalem. When they get there, he's going to be abused, mistreated, killed. And in three days, he's going to rise again. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus go to Jerusalem to go through all this? Why not just turn another direction? Well, because the Father called him to do it. But he'll lose everything. No he gain everything. You see, Jesus' goal is us. And He knew He had to walk through the cross to save us. What He really wants is a relationship with us. And He was willing to suffer to get that. He wanted the joy that's on the other side of the cross. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before Him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus didn't suffer because He likes Suffering. He wanted the joy that was on the other side. Well, now, how did he know there was joy on the other side? Well, the same way he knew that there was suffering in Jerusalem. He said it was written. It was prophecy. Jesus read his Bible. And there, in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, what was going to happen in Jerusalem was clearly laid out. But in places like uh, uh, Psalm 16, other places... Jesus also knew that He would rise again and that He would draw us to Himself for eternity. You see, Jesus chose the illogical, painful road, not out of foolishness, but out of faith. God said it. He believed it. In the face of His emotions, in the face of what His culture was telling Him, it boiled down for for Jesus did he trust his father did he believe his word it was walking by faith not by sight that's what it boils down to for you you live in a culture that is dedicated to keeping you focused on pursuing consumerism seeking life in an endless progression Uh, of experiences and relationships and material possessions. New York Times uh, estimated that the average person in America is exposed through TV and and newspaper and and billboards and and radio and labels and all the rest. The average American is exposed to an average of 3,500 ads per day. All of them telling you that your deepest spiritual needs, your relational needs, your emotional needs are going to be met through wealth. All of them telling you that the key is to follow your felt needs. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, this is eternal life to know God and to know Jesus Christ. Jesus said, let go of your wealth and possessions and follow me and you will have true treasures both in this life and for eternity. Now, who are you going to believe? This world that wants to use you, that has something to sell you, a God who loves you, Jesus who died for you, who have life and joy and peace to give you. Don't be clueless. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that apart from you and your ability, it is impossible for us to escape this preoccupation with stuff, with wealth. We are pulled back into it over and over. We escape for a time and then get drawn right back in. And so we come before you in need, recognizing that it, is no more possible for us to escape on our own than it is for us to get a camel through the eye of a needle. We need You to open our eyes. We need You to retrain our hearts. We need You to free us, to to change our thinking. Lord, only by Your renewing our minds can we escape. And so we ask for the fortitude, for the faith, to trust You and obey You, even when what You're calling us to do seems unreasonable, seems foolish. We want to listen to Your Word. We want to trust You. We want to live by faith, not by sight. So, Lord, as we address our culture, we begin to see how it works to keep us enslaved to to another God. Lord, open our eyes and give us freedom. Help us to, to, to make those decisions that you call us to. Our we praise you for your word. We praise you that you are honest with us, that you love us. You don't pull punches. I'll open our hearts to applying this. We pray in your name. Amen.